Hello and welcome to episode number 19 of Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Acevedo. Emmy and Oscar-winning filmmaker Ted Reed has been producing, directing, writing, and shooting films and television since the 1970s. In the spring of 1970, 20-year-old Museum of Fine Arts film students Ted Reed and his friend Tim Treadway drove through the South to film some of the last living blues legends. Their goal was to discover the very roots of American popular music and the sources of the rock music they had grown up with. That film, the 27-minute, 16-millimeter black-and-white Thinking Out Loud, was seen at a handful of festivals and then sat for decades in a storage facility. Ted's new documentary, The Blues Trail Revisited, is a personal memoir that encompasses the evolution of American music, the upheavals of the civil rights movement, the power of memory, and a reflection on the treasures of personal experience, both lost and found. Here is the trailer. Fifty years ago, I took a road trip with a college friend of mine in search of the last living blues legends. We drove from Boston into the Deep South and found who we were looking for on the back roads of Tennessee, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Since then, that film sat in a vault. Until last year. Now, I'm back driving the same route I took all those years ago, in search of what's become of those legends' legacies, and to find out if anyone is still searching for the birthplace of the blues. Well, they certainly are. Today, Memphis, Tennessee, and the Delta region of Mississippi are ground zero for 21st century blues tourism, and it's almost as big a moneymaker for the states as catfish and cotton. I wanted to find out who's keeping the blues alive today. Well, if it wasn't for my baby, finger I'd lose my mind. And who's coming on modern-day pilgrimages to the historic home of the blues? Looking back and looking ahead is what the film I Return to Make is all about. Blue and America go together. Don't mean you you love it or even like it, but you can't separate yourself from it. The Blues Trail Revisited is what I'm calling it, and I hope you'll be watching for it. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, we encourage you to please subscribe and leave a review. And now, on to my conversation with Ted Reed. Hello, Ted Reed. Welcome to Making Media Now. Hello, Michael. Thank you for having me. 
it is really great to, to have you here. And as I mentioned in the introduction, Ted has got a long and storied career, uh, winner of dozens of Emmy awards, even has won an Oscar award. And I want to talk about your career. And I really want to talk about your, your latest film, which is called The Blues Trail Revisited, which was a, uh, a very immersive, experiential documentary I had the pleasure of not just watching, but listening to. There's some really great blues uh, in your film that um, I, I really want to get your take on. So Thank before you. we get into the here and now, mm -hmm. let's talk about the there and then. Right. Uh, you have had, as I said, a long and varied career uh, producing everything from documentary films to educational media to a, a weekly, uh, nightly magazine show. So before we get into all of that, let our viewer, our listeners know, where are you speaking to me from right now? Right now, I'm in my office in Gloucester, Massachusetts. I'm right across the street from the harbor, which is during the summer, a very tempting distraction. Yeah. But uh, this time of year, I can stick to my business, so to speak. Yeah, and the nice weather that will tempt your work ethic. Exactly. Bad. You indoors. <laughs> There's a friend of mine who has a boat that's tied up right across the street, too. So you know, the temptation to go do something else when the weather's really nice is, is very compelling. Are you a native of that area? I, you know, sort of grew up in New England and uh, had family that lived here in on Cape Ann, both in Rockport and in Gloucester. And mm -hmm. when uh, my grandmother passed away and I was able to rent her house off of my parents, I became a full-time Cape Anner. You know, I was um, drawn to the place, I think, primarily because of its, you know, there's, there's a huge amount of artistic expression going on. There's a very lively artistic community, lots of musicians who have traveled all over the world come and settle here. I mean, it's an mm -hmm. interesting little pocket. And what has always been great about it has been the fact that you know, during the winter, until very recently, it became like almost totally deserted. You know, so you kind of had the place to yourself. And then during the summer, you get all excited with the tourists and everything. So it was a real contrast of experiences. And, um, um, when I got married, I was able to, you know, buy the house and we stayed there for about 30 years and then bought a house in Gloucester and, uh, which was a little more off the beaten path, which is what I was looking for at the time. And, um, that's basically where I've stayed. You know, I mean, I've, I've traveled all over the world for work, but I just keep coming back to this place just because it just seems it's got the right kind of vibe. It's got the right combination of creativity and the sort of down to earth people. And it's a real antidote from the, um, the show business environment. Very much so. Yeah. And it's, it, it's geographically, it's, it's certainly a place apart. Like you're not going to stumble upon Gloucester and Rockport, that part of Cape Ann, unless you're heading there. That's correct. Yeah. It's kind of the end of the, into the trail, you know, yeah, very much so. <laughs> you take, yeah. take the train to the end. That's where, that's where you get off. Yes. Yeah. In your, in your long and illustrious career, let me ask you this. Did, when you were entering uh, the uh, filmmaking business, the television producing business, did you have a kind of a roadmap set out for yourself? Not at all. It was, it was total instinct. I had started off as a still photographer when I was in high school. I was actually able to make money. I worked for a photographer. Uh, I grew up in Andover, Massachusetts. Okay. I worked for a photographer there who did weddings and commercial work and stuff like that. So 
from the time I was a sophomore in high school, I started, you know, actually making some money being a photographer. And that's sort of what I went to school for. I ended up at the uh, Boston Museum School of Fine Arts and I was pursuing photography there. And there was a guy down in the basement of the school who had a, this very basic film set up, a couple of reels with a little viewing machine. And he was, he was looking at this thing very intently. And I said, what are you doing? And he turned up and he looked at me and said, you want to make a movie? And that was you know, sort of my introduction to it. We, there was no film department, per se, at the art school at that time. So it was kind of up to us to sort of make it up as we go along. And, you know, by staying one chapter ahead of the class, we were able to get people involved who were also into film. This was in the late 60s, early 70s, when um, certainly at art schools, the curriculum was very free form. You know, so mm-hmm. you could basically do whatever you want. We were t- affiliated with Tufts University proposing as we were getting a degree. But as far as the uh, studio courses were concerned, it was very open. And so we just sort of, you know, de facto created a film department, got lecturers from other colleges to come in and show that um, itinerant independent filmmakers that would come through town would show their films there. And we would fill up this lecture hall with people. And finally, the dean of the school said, hey, you know, this is looking like it's going to work. Why don't you guys start a film department? So we did. And um, my partner at the time was a guy named Richard Broadman, who created a number of uh, independent documentaries, mostly about you know, social issues, everything from public housing to um, water systems to teachers' strikes and things like that. It was a real, it was an interesting outlet for me because I got to work on a lot of a lot of very, you know, oddball projects, but they were fascinating and great to be on. Sort of, really, that's how I got bit by the documentary bug. Really, mm-hmm. I was, I was originally, you know, I wanted to be a commercial photographer, but um, I went over to filmmaking and realized this was really what I liked. So, to sort of make ends meet, I started working on um, TV commercials and various other commercial projects. And, and what were you working as? Were you directing? Were you shooting? Oh, no, no, no. I, I started off as a grip. You know, okay. I said, and I worked my way up to um, sound recorder. Then I worked my way up to assistant camera. Then they finally gave me a camera. So I was DP for a while. And then over the years, I sort of, you know, had every job on set, which is the best way to become a director is to sort of know what everybody does. And then you can have the full picture about what it is you need everybody to be able to do to make your to make your vision come to life. So I was doing TV commercials, and that's where I met my wife to be on the set of a McDonald's spot. You know, we were sort of the last one standing at two o'clock in the morning. You know, it was the final close-up shots were being done, and um, we just kept bumping into each other on sets. And uh, finally, uh, we were working on some projects, and the head of the CBS affiliate uh, called up and said, hey, our documentary unit is leaving to go to Hollywood. Would you like to do an hour-long show on the history of television in New England? Yeah, you know, immediately. So we uh, yeah. left, our, left our agency jobs and started working just freelance on this one project for the, for the TV station. And the thing ended up winning an Emmy, a local Emmy Award, and it was kind of you know, good press. And so the management at the station said, hey, listen, get yourselves a name and a letterhead and we'll throw you some work. So for like a good 15, 20 years, we were producing documentaries. We were doing like two or three a year for a local TV station, which at the time before cable, they were pretty well funded 
things because Absolutely. because sponsors only had so many places that they could you know buy advertising. So and then when cable came in, we started working more for cable com- uh, cable networks and sort of expanded that way. And um, yeah, just went on doing documentaries, occasional you know TV commercials. Uh, we took a documentary to Sundance back in the late eighties. Early nineties, I think. No, late in eighty nine, about a debutante cotillion in Washington D.C., and we had shot the thing on sixteen millimeter black and white film. So the folks at Sundance said, "This is great. It's so retro. It's just like Pennebecker. You know, this is amazing. So we want to have it." So it was like one of those things that. And the thing about film festivals is, well, we were total novices. We knew nothing. All we knew was TV. You know, when you make a TV show, you put it on. Maybe you watch it with a few of your friends. Perhaps a million people are watching it at the same time. You have no idea. You have you know you can't tell what the response is. Right. So this was sort of the first time we ever actually watched one of our things in a movie theater when there's like 800 people watching it and you know sort of reacting to it and stuff. It was a it was that was great. That was that was really amazing. Um, the downside of it was that uh, we didn't have another project. When you go to a film festival to show your film, you need to have another project in your wing to be able to, well, what are you working on next? They're always asking. Right. Yeah, you know, this, this film practically killed us. You know, so why, why would we do something else right away? You know, it didn't make sense, but that's the way it works. And uh, so now, you know, I decided um, after my wife passed away, I wanted to get back into independent filmmaking. And this is sort of my first venture along those lines and uh, with the ambition to be able to get into some film festivals. As I understand the story, you were in the process of moving offices right. and you found a film that you had shot back in 1970. Yeah, my first movie. Your first uh, My first film that I made. Yeah, it was uh, as, a, as a sort of a, it was my, not even the beginning of my second year as a film student. And it was one of these things of, like I say, and I think it was a part I say in the film, it's amazing how brave you are when you don't know anything. Absolutely. And That's the so, nice way to be. Yeah. No so, such thing uh, as failure. No, not at all. So, you know, we, we wanted to get, you know, the Araflex BL that we could record sync sound on the Nagra with and, you know, really do a thing. Like, we, did, we weren't aware of, you know, William Ferris and some of his stuff. And he was apparently, he was working on kind of the same topics. Only he was, he, he had the gear that it takes to be able to do sync sounds documentaries. We had a little hand wound Bolex and a cassette recorder. And so, you know, we were going to, but we were going to make a, make the best of it. And so we did. And um, it became, the film is more of a montage, you know, this, this early, this, this first film kind of thing. Um, not exactly abstract, but it wasn't like the tra- a traditional sync sound documentary where you have interviews with people actually talking to the camera and things like that. We just re- record people as they were talking and then sort of shot whatever else was going on. And when you were making, I- do you recall when you were making it, did you have a vision of what the completed film would look, sound, and feel like? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, no, it, when, when you work on your first film, you kind of feel like, okay, here's, here's the subject I want to go after. But how to do it and, you know, what's it going to look like when it's all done? No, absolutely no idea at all. And it was one of those things that sort of grew organically over the process, my learning how to edit. And it took about a year and a half for me to get the thing to the point where, you know, both my partner, Tim Treadway, and I thought, okay, this is something we could actually show people. 
And um, so it went around to a couple of you know, student film festivals, a Boston Public Library, bought a print, you know, it was all, it, you know, it felt felt pretty good at the time. And um, but that was sort of the last thing I had done on my own for quite a while, because after that, I started working on other people's movies and just trying to learn more of the skills that I needed to be able to you know, tell stories. So by the time uh, my wife and I were you know, working for the TV station, I kind of had I had it down in terms of, okay, here's what you do. Here's what you, you know, should probably have like a little bit of a roadmap about what, at least what it is you're thinking of doing. With documentaries, though, you always run into something that kind of goes like, oh, this is the real, you know, heart of the thing. You know, whatever you thought the heart of it was, sometimes it's revealed that it's something totally different, much more powerful. Sure. So having that, having a structure that you can then depart from became uh, a solid way of being able to work. And that was, that was, you know, the partnership that I had with my wife at the time, we were really good at being able to stay flexible and just stay aware and alert of what it is that we were encountering and mm -hmm. being modify our storytelling. Mm -hmm. uh, accordingly but um i think it's still true i mean this with this film here i was um blues trailer visit i was just basically into i wonder what it's like down there now you know when i when i rediscovered the film um thinking out loud and i watched it and i said boy this is like you know library of congress footage you know and Very it's much fine so. I shot it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it was, it's interesting you say that because um, I've worked on a lot of historical uh, productions and I've looked at a lot of, you know, primary source interviews. And when I was watching your film, the segments that were shot in 1970, it had that feel to me, uh, like uh, almost like the WPA right. um, authenticity. Yeah. Uh, and I, I have to say that the uh, the conditions that you were shooting in also, you know, in the rural South, probably 1970 didn't look all that different from 1940. No, definitely not. In, in many no. of the places that you were. Right. Um, I mean, I look at the footage now and it, it was, it's like, boy, nothing's nothing's changed down here. So true. So at the in 1970 you obviously felt something some attraction to the blues as a as a music genre right um did that persist through your life oh yeah absolutely i mean you know when i was even before high school i was a big fan of the rolling stones and the yardbirds and then i started finding out who these guys got their music from and so i started pursuing muddy waters and howlin wolf bb king and really getting an idea of where this music came from. So about the same time that I was really, you know, starting to become more and more aware of that, of where my, you know, British rock heroes had actually gotten their material, I ran into Tim Treadway, who was a real hardcore, you know, blues fanatic. And his, his thing was uh, country blues, not so much, you know, urban Chicago blues, but real country blues, Mississippi, Fred McDowell, and Sunhouse. Blind Lemon Jefferson, Big Bill Brunzi, people like that, um, who had big careers, you know, in the 20s and 30s, mm -hmm. but, you know, basically disappeared until uh, the folk revival of the 60s. So he was kind of following it from that, from that branch as well. And he just, you know, sort of cold called uh, Dick Waterman to say, hey, uh, we're, we're interested in tracking down some of these guys. And Waterman at the time was Sunhouse's manager. 
was also Bonnie Raitt's manager, but that's, that's a whole other story. Wow. And it was, um, and we just, you know, he said, yeah, uh, come by and, and talk to me about things on your way down South. So we stopped at his apartment in Philadelphia and talked with him about, Hey, we'd like to find this guy and this guy. And he say, okay, here's where you go. And you call up his cousin go to the local post office. They may know what street he's living on now or things like that. So it wasn't like, you know, now with the internet, you can kind of Google everything. But back then it was, let's make a phone call. Right. And see, and see what the, who the local operator will find for us. Or when we finally went down there, we would just go to the general store and say, Hey, do you know where we can find Fred McDowell? And they, they would, you know, ask a couple of people and tell us where to go. But it would take days for us to be able to locate people. But the only way to do it was to actually go down there and try to find these people ourselves in real time. So that's where most of the four weeks of us traveling around the South went to, you know, trying to track folks down. And had you, uh, between 1970 and uh, 2020 or thereabouts, um, had you traveled the Blues Trail at all? Not for our listeners, as as a piece of geography... And correct me if I'm wrong on this, Ted, the Blues Trail is from Memphis to New Orleans, essentially, correctly? Essentially, yeah. I mean, the the official Mississippi Blues Trail right. uh, is a series of like 200 plus markers that are like, you know, battlefield markers only. It's here's where uh, Muddy Waters was born. Here's where Sunhouse died. You know, and here's where so-and-so recorded. And it's mostly in Mississippi, but there are a few markers in Tennessee and some down in Louisiana. There are also markers in, uh, there's one in Maine, there's a few in Chicago, uh, there are a couple in Paris, you know, but for the most part, it's, it's, it's Mississippi. And I, but, you know, there was nothing like that at the time when Tim and I went down there. In fact, it was the sort of thing of, you know, we would ask people who were looking for so-and-so, and you'd be, what do you want to find him for? You know, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was like, you know, these people are just sort of long forgotten. And, or, you know, the other, the other thing I got to say is culturally, um, black music in general in the deep South was uh, not necessarily in good favor with, you know, a lot of them, for white citizens, put it that way, very few of them were actually even aware of of you know blues and uh, the origins of all of that, so we go down there looking around for people, and every now and then we get caught, you know, stopped by the county sheriff because we were in Tim's mom's Oldsmobile with uh, Massachusetts plates on it, and the sheriff would say, "What, what are you boys doing down here?" You know, and you say, "Oh, we're looking for some blues guys." And they would look at us like, you know, because the whole voter registration thing was still fresh in everyone's memory. Absolutely. Yeah. The upheaval that that was causing. In fact, there was still a lot of Jim remnants of Jim Crow down there. You could not that they had signs of colored only, but you could see where they had just taken them down. So what was the what was the impetus for revisiting the Blues Trail? I think it was a because Thinking Out Loud was my first movie ever. And mm-hmm. rediscovering it um, at a time when I was, you know, still grieving my wife's loss. I was still, you know, this kind of thing, okay, what do I want to do now? And I found my first film and I was thinking, gee, I wonder what it's like down there now. And just on a hunch, I said to my cameraman, let's, let's go down there, take the same route, you know, just sort of drive down and see, you know, sort of revisit all the places that we shot, all these original guys from the original film and see see what we can find you know see it was just on a a whim pretty much but i felt there might be something there and so what i discovered you know was amazing and and really you know actually 
quite encouraging because I had no idea whether, you know, those old blues ethics were still, you know, there. If the whole, if the roots of the blues, you know, if you could still find them. Turns out you could. And it was, um, it was just amazing to sort of see how the blues is really alive down there now. In fact, probably even more so than when we went down there 50 years ago. How much of a factor was was it that you actually drove the 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 trail, well, you know, as, yeah. as opposed to flying into someplace and renting a car for a day or two, like like frankly, a normal film film shoot would often do. Right, right? you sort right. of you drop in, you get what you need, you leave. Right, but yeah, talk about the experience of um, long uh, car trips. Well, and, yeah, and, and how that that impacts you as you know as a as a filmmaker and as a storyteller we're, we're very you know acclimated now to everything being fast book it now get in and out real quick uh, as you said and this was sort of going back again to you know the old school way of doing this sort of you know ramble down there hit one spot you know kind of think of where you want to go next we had no reservations at any you know hotels or anything like that it was kind of like well where are we going to go tomorrow and you know, sort of thinking about maybe we could find somebody here or what are we going to do? And it was really, you know, organic. It was, it was kind of like, um, let's follow stuff. And we would talk to people and they would say, oh, you got to go to Bentonia, Mississippi and talk to Jimmy Dunn because they got the oldest juke joint in the world. And we had, I was you know, totally unaware of it. Even I, after I had done all this research on the Blues Trail and the Mississippi Cultural and Arts Association and various other things like Living Blues Magazine, they would always have who's down there, who's doing what. But there are a bunch of things that you only find by going there and firsthand poking around, talking to people, striking up conversations, um, and seeing what other people are into. And that was, that was really one of the big... That was probably the most fun of the whole thing was just sort of just going in there completely unprepared and kind of see what was going on. Yeah. And figure out whether we wanted to do something with it. Before we started recording, Ted and I were uh, we were sort of sharing some um, commonalities around this experience. And so uh, one place that uh, we've both spent time in a place called Clarksdale, Mississippi. My brother, Rob Azevedo, uh, is a writer and some years back uh, had pitched a story to the Boston Globe about uh, doing a piece on juke joints and found himself in Clarksdale, Mississippi. And as he has grown to do, uh, struck up what's become enduring friendships with, among others, a a guy named Bubba O'Keefe, who is... I, I thought he was the mayor, but I guess he's just the unofficial mayor of Clarksdale, Mississippi. All of the acclaim of the mayor, but not the responsibility. Right. And right. Clarksdale is located at the, you know, I don't know if it's mythical or not, but it's the literally the crossroads. I went down to the cl- crossroads. I will not sing, so don't anybody shudder in fear. Um, where Robert Johnson sold his soul exactly. to learn to play the blues. Right. And there's this place called the Shack Up Inn. Right. That I mean, you feel like you're on a movie set, but there's nothing fake about this place. So give me your impression of Clarksdale, of the shack up and just the almost otherworldly authenticity of that area. Yeah, well, that's I mean, Clarksdale in its day, in its heyday was what they call the gold buckle on the cotton belt. It was where all of the cotton basically came through to get weighed, processed and then put on 
riverboats either off to Chicago from for Sally or onto railroads. And it was quite a prosperous town. But uh, then, you know, when mechanized uh, farming came in, um, lost a huge amount of population and really went, you know, down into the dumps for a while. And it was, it was this sort of grittiness that was the first thing that really hit us when we rolled into Clarksdale. And it was kind of like, whoa, what happened to this place? But then you start putting nosing around and you start seeing things like, okay, here's this little uh, restaurant you can go in and kind of connect with everybody. And, and then you quickly learn that, you know, Charlie Musselwhite and various other musicians actually live in Clarksdale. And you start wondering, well, what is it about this place? And you start talking to more musicians and locals. Um, you talk, you know, I talked to uh, Roger Stoley, who was the uh, manager and owner of the uh, Cathead store down sure. on Delta yeah. Avenue, yeah. And, which is this bizarre fusion of art store, music store, uh, tourist information site, and, and everything else you could possibly imagine. I have a piece of art hanging on my wall right, right, right over here <laughs> that, that, that I got there. Okay, then, then you know. Yeah. Um, but what was amazing about Clarksdale is everybody, I mean, you, you hear about Southern hospitality and they, everybody says, you know, oh, come on, come on in and, you know, try this and stuff like that. But people, you roll into Clarksdale and it's kind of like, you must be here because you're into the blues. <laughs> you know, right. it was just sort of an automatic assumption right there. And then suddenly you find all these people talking the same language and they have these references to some really obscure musicians that you thought you were kind of the only one, you know, who knew anything about them. But it's like, it's, it's people come from all over the world to come to Clarksdale, you know, to kind of be at this epicenter, at the crossroads of, you know, sort of where the birth of the blues was. Bubba O'Keefe now is uh, head of um, Visit Clarksdale. Mm -hmm. He's doing a lot of work in terms of developing the tourism, not only music, but also agricultural tourism, civil rights tourism, you know, things like that. So they're, they're really looking because they, they discovered that people want to come to this place and kind of right. feel, you know, like, like at the Shack Up Inn, which is a bunch of sharecroppers shacks. Yep. Um, that are now B and D's, and it's you know it's funky, it's um, corrugated zinc side and, and roofs and some converted silos and things like that. But it's it's great. I mean, it's it's the kind of thing that if you really want to drink in the atmosphere, it's totally authentic. I mean, we stopped in Nashville on the way down, and we're kind of disappointed about how much of a you know tourist trap. Uh, Nashville had turned into and if you wanted to find real music you really had to search hard uh, with Clarksdale it was just roll into town they have music every night of the week sometimes several venues of course this is pre-COVID but um, it was the kind of place that I really felt at home and the thing is I went down went back there was quite a few times we went to a couple of festivals and also do some pickup um, interviews and every time we went down there, people would say, hey, Ted, good to see you back and things like that. So it was really, it was sort of this incredible, you know, comfortable, you know, friendly kind of place. And, you know, you, I think you just keep going back to Clarksdale just because there's always something new going on there. But there's also something very traditional, very familiar about the place. So very true. So I was there, I think it was probably about five or six years ago. And you know, just to, to give listeners a sense, this is not a, um, this is not a theme park. 
This is oh. this, this is not a Epcot experience of the blues. This is a you know at least when I was there, if you walk a block or two away from this very kind of funky um, bohemian bluesy um, part of town, if you walk a block or two away, you're in poverty ridden. Yes. Backwoods. Yes. And, you know, this is good luck waiting for your Uber to, you know, to 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 take you out of there. But that just adds to the uh, the the authenticity and, uh, you know, the the grit of the experience. Um, It was. Yeah. I I can't speak more highly enough of the experience. If that's you know, if you're if and I don't know what you wouldn't like about this, but if, if you don't love friendly people, great music, amazing food. Right. Uh, in just a, you know, a real immersive experience. And, and I got so much of that from you, from watching your film too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Very good. Actually, one of the best times to go down there is during one of their festivals and they have, I think like a dozen different cell, uh, music festivals during the year. And hopefully as you know, things come back to normal, those things will start picking up again. Um, Bubba O'Keefe had a great story about when he was, uh, he, I think he had already done one of his juke joint fests mm-hmm. and he gets, he, uh, this was at the time, I guess, pre voicemail uh, in a, on a cell phone, but he gets home and on his answering machine, there's a message from this guy named Robert Plant who had heard about this festival, wanted to know what he could do to be involved. Right. Right. (laughs) And you know, British accent, Robert Plant, he thought his leg was being pulled. Sure. Sure as hell. It is the Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin. And you know, that that's a voicemail message he did not erase. Oh, (laughs) nor would I. Yeah. Yeah, you go into the, um, the the Delta Blues Museum, sort of in the middle of town there, and there are these pictures of Robert Plant outside the Delta Blues Museum. They also have pictures of ZZ Top and a bunch of other, you know, folks that have really, you know, championed the blues in their career. So it's, um, but again, the best time to go down there is during one of the festivals where you'll find people from all over the world who are there for one reason, and that's to listen to the blues. So what has this experience, what has it done for you in terms of, uh, did it, has it rekindled um, a desire to make more documentaries? Um, uh, what are you feeling at, at now that you've had the opportunity to, you know, to do something that a lot of people never have the opportunity to do, which is kind of relive a chapter from your past? Well, I, I found it as a, as a way to be able to recharge a, my career, be my interest in doing, in doing films. So uh, it was, uh, I, when I went down there, I said, if I make a film about this, this is going to be something that I want to be able to use to get back into independent filmmaking, you know, do some festivals, learn what it's like now to distribute stuff on your own, because it's a completely different story from when uh, my wife and I did the debutante film. Um, when we hit, we got a big distributor, we went to Sundance and all that other stuff. So there was, a lot more of, okay, you just sort of hand the project over to somebody and they handle it. Nowadays, uh, unless you're incredibly fortunate, it's all up to you. You know, funding, production, post-production, uh, finding somebody to be able to uh, distribute the thing for you, publicists, all the other stuff. All those jobs now are yours. 
And so that to me was the big eye opener about this. It was kind of like, oh, you mean you can't just sort of hand it over to somebody and they'll take care of it? No, no, it's all up to you. If you want that film to go somewhere, it's on you completely. So yeah, I was interesting because that there there are a lot of people who feel like um that actually is an improvement because a lot of those barriers to entry. Uh, people are now able to say, no, okay, I'll shoot it myself. I'll cut it myself. I'll, I don't have to worry about laying in sound, you know, I'll, I'll, cause I'll capture the sound when I capture the image. Right. Uh, but by the same token, that, that now becomes the expectation also. Right. Exactly. Um, and I thought it was interesting because I mean, as when you say barriers are, are not nearly as high as they were, and it's absolutely true. I mean, when we did the, the debutante film that we did, the one to Sundance, it was, we shot out 60 millimeter black and white film, partially because of the aesthetic of, you know, just doing something that was gritty with something that's glamorous, but also the fact that it was cheaper. And so we would be able to shoot more and get more mileage out of our budget, but it was still ridiculously expensive. I mean, I was paying my lab bill for about five years. And, you know, so that, that's why it took many years to be able to edit things because you had to wait until you had the money to get the, the work print out of the, out of the lab again. And so it was now, you know, you just go down there with this little camera and you can just throw it all in your suitcase. And it's amazing the kind of quality images that you can get with fairly inexpensive equipment, you know, compared to what we needed to use back in the days of film. So, um, yeah, those barriers are down the, uh, one big barrier that's up there is that everybody's doing it. Everyone's making the documentary now. So to be able to get your thing seen and to get an audience and all of that stuff, you have to be kind of inventive in terms of how you're going to approach this. One of the things that I feel we were very fortunate with here is the connections we made, the friends we made, the associations we made with blues societies, blues fans, blues radio stations record labels and people like that, just sort of telling them about the project. And they're saying, well, tell, let us know when the thing's ready. And using that in the social media um, way to be able to get the word out that the film is available, I think is going to really help us in terms of finding an audience for this thing. So as we speak right now, um, is the film ready for prime time? Or is it, is it complete and ready to be released? The color grade is being finished today. Oh, wonderful! And, um, and we already did the audio mix, so it's um, it's it's going to go up. Uh, we're going to try a pay per view model on Vimeo and sort of see what happens, and you know, publicize it through our social media. Try to get as much word of mouth going as as possible. Um, what's been fun is some of the people we've shown it to already uh, have really liked it. You know, and that was that's always a big question. You know, you you create this thing. It's kind of in a vacuum, you know, you know, you start going with your gut about what you think is going to be a, a good film. Maybe you show it to a couple of people for a test screen. You don't really know how a general public is going. And that was the thing that was interesting to me is people who have almost no interest in the blues, marginal interest in music, loved the story about, right. the, about yeah. what I was doing. So that's, that's the beauty that of it. It works. It works on multiple levels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And which was kind of what I was hoping it would do. Again, you don't really know until you know you get it out there and people are actually watching. So I was, I was, you know, I've been over the last couple of weeks. I've been feeling very good about about the project. So consequently, I want to do some more. I mean, there are some other um, project ideas that I think are, are worth pursuing. One of the things that ended up happening with this is we ended up with a ton of more footage than we could actually that I could actually use with this particular story. 
And uh, one of the things we shot was the June Joint Festival in 2019. And we had like 35 different performances. So last year, when the Juke Joint Festival was uh, canceled, I got the idea of, well, let's put together like an hour-long film with some of these performances and a little bit of the side action, like, you know, the crawfish stands and um, the, the souvenir hawkers. And they have a little, you know, a petting zoo with, um, they have these dog, with these monkeys that ride dogs around a circular track. <laughs> it's, it was, you know, all these other oddball kind of things that you could throw in there. And so we made this film and then just uh, put it up on, what did we do? We did a Facebook uh, watch party on the day that the Juton Festival would actually, you know, do, would actually appear. And we ended up getting about 10,000 people watching. That's fantastic. We, and we also had a lower third crawl, basically, please support Clark Stale's musicians. Please support the Blues uh, Foundation's uh, fund for COVID-19 relief and things like that. You know, so we, ra- we actually were able to raise a few thousand dollars by you know, just showing this thing. So, and it's still out there. I think what we want to be able to do with it is, is get more people to watch it this year to generate more interest in going to the actual Jutoing Festival in April, which hopefully will, will be happening. Well, we'll be keeping an eye out for the completed version of the Blues Trail Revisited. Um, I'll certainly be making sure to keep in touch with with you so that we can promote it through all the filmmakers collaborative uh, channels and network. Uh, it's, it's just a great film. It's um, there's so much joy and history and authenticity in it. And I, I thank you for your time in, in uh, sharing this film with me uh, so that we can have the conversation. And um, as I said, I look forward to seeing it in its completed form. Great. Thank you very much, Michael. It's been a pleasure. All right, Ted. Take care. All right. Thanks. Thanks.